0: Law of Self-Defense content you are about to enjoy is presented for general educational purposes only. It does not constitute legal advice. If you are in need of legal advice, consult competent legal counsel in the relevant jurisdiction. Welcome to our ongoing coverage of the Minnesota murder trial of Derek Chauvin over the in-custody death of George Floyd. I'm attorney Andrew Branca for Law of Self-Defense, providing guest commentary and analysis of this trial for legal insurrection as a reminder, I am live parloring the trial in real time over at parlor.com, and you can find that commentary using my parlor handle at Law of Self-Defense. No spaces. Now, arguably, the most interesting part of today's proceedings happened in the last seven minutes or so before the court recessed for the day. That's when the prosecution complained about some informal conduct by the defense counsel, only to find itself scolded by Judge Cahill, who then fairly stormed out of the courtroom. I'll come back to that in just a moment, along with video of that event, that exchange. As a brief summary of the substantive parts of the day, however, the afternoon saw four prospective jurors subject to voir dire. The first of the afternoon's prospective jurors, number 90, was rather quickly dismissed for cause when it turned out he was wildly biased against the police, whom he characterized as systemically racist and over-militarized. The second prospective juror, number 91, was a retired female who self-identified as black. She was found acceptable by both the defense and prosecution and was seated as the 11th juror for this trial. The third prospective juror, number 92, was another female, and she was also acceptable to both the defense and prosecution and was seated as the 12th juror for this trial. The final prospective juror of this afternoon, number 95, a male, was dismissed for cause by Judge Cahill after questioning by defense counsel Nelson revealed that number 95 would be too concerned about the safety of his family to take on the responsibility of being a juror on this high profile case. Now, for what it's worth, my opinion. The two-seated jurors, number 91 and 92, both struck me as perfectly reasonable jurors for this trial, especially in the context of some of the patently and outrageously biased prospective jurors we've seen coming through voir dire so far. Now let's get back to this Judge Cahill scolding of state prosecutors. To understand this afternoon's scolding, we first have to know that the defense has filed motions for the court uh, for a continuance or delay of the trial, as well as a change in the venue of the trial, in part on the basis of the city of Minneapolis agreeing to a $27 million settlement to the Floyd family, as well as the city's ongoing public discussion of that settlement. The concern, of course, is that the city agreeing to this record breaking uh, settlement would suggest to prospective jurors that, well, if the city agrees there was a $27 million mistake in this case, then surely something wrong must have been done and have done surely done by the defendant in this trial, Derek Chauvin. About mid-afternoon, there was some informal discussion in the courtroom about these motions to continue and change venue, in part because the written briefs for them were due uh, to Judge Cahill by the end of business today, and he intends to rule on those motions tomorrow morning. As part of that informal discussion, defense counsel noted that even this very day, the city was again having a meeting with the press in which they were discussing the settlement. As yet another example of conduct that the defense argues calls for a continuance and change of venue. I have that video of that roughly one minute reference to the uh, press Uh, briefing embedded in the text version of today's content. Now, keeping that background in mind, as the court prepared to recess for the day today, Prosecutor Schleider informed Judge Cahill that he disagreed with the precise manner in which defense counsel Nelson had characterized that press briefing. It was not, for example, a press briefing specific to the settlement or called specifically to talk about the settlement, but rather was the normal weekly press briefing for the city where reporters happened to ask questions about the settlement. This statement by the prosecution may or may not be accurate. I neither recall the details of how the defense characterized the press briefing, uh, nor am I going to bother finding a copy of the meeting, the press briefing, to see if that characterization is correct. The important part here is that after complaining about the supposed mischaracterization of the press briefing. Prosecutor Schleider asked the court to require that any such factual statements made in court be done formally as a formal offer of proof or declaration with supporting exhibits, affidavits, and so forth. Now, strictly speaking, technically, this is indeed precisely the way substantive factual claims are supposed to be submitted in court. These procedures help ensure a clear record of the trial, and a clear record is important, especially if the matter proceeds to an appeal. Judge Cahill, however, wasn't having any of this complaining by the prosecution. He literally interrupted Prosecutor Schleider, saying, let's just stop right there. The judge noted that unlike the prosecution, defense counsel Nelson was essentially working by himself. The state, the judge noted, now had 10 or 12 lawyers working on their side of the case. The state has plenty of lawyers that could sit outside the courtroom and churn out briefs and exhibits and affidavits. The judge was not, however, going to require that Nelson have to stop jury selection proceedings so he could step out of the court to formalize what was really just informal commentary among the parties uh, and the court at the The judge was not, however, going to require that Nelson have to stop jury selection proceedings so he could step out of the courtroom to formalize what was really just informal commentary amongst the parties in the court to expect that to occur would be completely unreasonable. Further, and I'm speculating here, because although Judge Cahill didn't mention it explicitly, it's worth noting that the judge, too, is largely working alone. For example, he's just received this evening the final defense motions arguing for continuance and change in venue, and also the state motions in opposition. As a result, Judge Cahill would likely spend much of the rest of the evening reading those documents, and the states in particular is likely to be extremely lengthy and dense. All those state lawyers have to produce work product after all, or why be there? Now, perhaps the state has 12 lawyers to write up its motions, but Judge Cahill only has Judge Cahill to read it all and to do so in a sufficiently thorough manner to allow arriving at a sound decision. Ultimately, Judge Cahill rather tersely told the prosecution to basically quit commenting on defense counsel's performance and noted the same condition would be applied to the defense, and stormed out of the courtroom. Now, there's nothing substantive about all this, at least standing alone, but I thought it's sufficiently noteworthy to share. In any case, I've embedded the seven and a half or so minutes of the last portion of today's court proceedings where all that occurred in the text version of today's content. Let's talk briefly about juror number 90. I'll only spend a moment here, uh, given that he was rather quickly dismissed for his anti-police bias, but that bias was so over the top and number 90 was so blind to how over the top it would appear to others that it's worth touching upon in a summary fashion. Once again, Vaudier started out with number 90 swearing under oath that he could and would be a fair and impartial juror in this case, and it was only the availability of the juror questionnaire that tore this affectation apart. It was also particularly telling that when Number 90 expressed concerns about his safety if he returned a particular verdict, the verdict he was worried about was a guilty verdict. He believed that supporters of Chauvin might hunt him down to cause him harm. This is akin to that previous prospective juror a day or so ago who blamed the rioting, looting, and arson in Minneapolis on the Boogaloo Boys rather than on pro Floyd, pro BLM rioters. In any case, I've embedded the voir dire of that prospective juror 90, who was dismissed for cause because of anti-police bias in the text version of today's content. Now to juror number 91. Uh, She came across as intelligent and thoughtful. About halfway through her voir dire, she self-identified as a black woman. She's a retired businesswoman with an undergraduate degree in child psychiatry. Overall, she struck me as a perfectly reasonable juror from the perspective of the defense and any prosecution genuinely interested in justice in this case. She did note a perception that the criminal justice system tended to treat blacks worse than whites, but characterized that as most likely due to economic reasons rather than racial reasons. She noted that the media likely exaggerates discrimination on the basis that the media exaggerates or downplays as it wishes. So how would anyone know from the media? On how to resolve a dispute, she insisted on a hard focus on relying on the facts. Her views of Chauvin and Floyd were both neutral on the grounds that she lacked the facts to have an informed opinion. She had a favorable view of the police and had a relative who was a police officer. She thought the events in Minneapolis after Floyd's death had largely been negative for the community, noting the rioting, looting, and arson. Despite this, she had a favorable view of Black Lives Matter in the sense that, she said, quote, I'm black and my life matters. She had a neutral view of Blue Lives Matter, but noted that everyone's life matters. Once again, I've embedded the voir dire of juror 91, seated as the 11th juror on this trial in the text version of today's content. And finally, juror number 92, um, she noted... She would form her opinion based on the facts and was not someone who'd compromise on what she believed on an important matter simply to achieve a consensus. She acknowledged that two people could see the same event and walk away with different perceptions. And that didn't necessarily mean either was lying. She also acknowledged that a person's training and experience would likely influence their reasonable perception of events. She noted a somewhat uh, negative perception of both Chauvin and Floyd, but Noted also, this was based merely on media reports and acknowledged she didn't actually have any facts for an informed opinion. She had no trouble with that. Although number 92 did express a perception that the criminal justice system did not treat black and white suspects in the same way, a perception she agreed was not based on any personal experiences, but merely media reports. Uh, She had a very favorable view of the police and strongly opposed defunding the Minneapolis Police Department. At the same time, she favored needed reform of the police. And again, I've included the voir dire of juror 92, um, seated as the 12th juror on this trial in the text version of today's content. Okay, folks, that's all I have for all of you today. I'll be covering the trial proceedings in real time, again, starting tomorrow over at parlor.com. Again, my parlor handle is at law of self-defense, no spaces. And I expect to have a midday and end of day report for all of you as usual. I'm attorney Andrew Branca for Law Self-Defense, guest commenting for legal insurrection, and until tomorrow, stay safe.